Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. I was 19 years old, sitting in a small room with one of the boys at the group home I was working at, and he was paying the price for making some choice that went against the rules of the home. They called it sit time. They'd have to sit for a certain number of hours by themselves in a room doing nothing. And a staff would have to sit with them so that they wouldn't run or hurt themselves. And I had the privilege of sitting with Stephen that day for some amount of hours. And I don't remember much, but it was one of those moments in life that there's almost like a, a burning into your brain of a moment or of somebody's words. And he said to me through tears, all I ever wanted was a family. And I think some of my innocence went away that day and in that moment because I realized that a family, which seemed so automatic to me and this sort of given in life, that that was not the case. And family is so fundamental to our growth and development as humans and our entire emotional well-being and our our need for belonging. And I just I couldn't fathom a young boy at 14 years old sitting on a couch in some institution and saying he didn't have a family. And I, you know, went home and begged my parents to adopt him, of course. I was incredibly hurt and angry when they said no. I couldn't really grasp why they would say no at that point. I now understand that you don't just adopt on a whim. You know, you you need to feel it deeply in your soul. You need to feel called to it on some deep, perhaps spiritual level. And I, I think I realized that maybe I was one of those people. And somewhere in there, years later, after some more years of experience in other group homes, I decided that the social service system really sucked at loving these kids. And these kids did need a home and a family, even if it was a bunch of them all together. So that was sort of my vision. Like I wanted my own group home. And I certainly envisioned it as a family. I envisioned doing it married with a husband. Didn't even occur to me that that would make sense to do as a single woman. This is Jen Sheedy, who's coming to us from Denver, Colorado. Jen and I met decades ago. The very first conversation we had was after Nate and I broke up the year before we got married. Jen was one of Nate's childhood friends, and by some bizarre chain of events, we ended up talking on the phone. There was no chit-chat, no pleasantries. We just dove right into the pain of the moment, calling it exactly like it was, Which is one of the things I love about Jen. One of the reasons she quickly became my closest friend. She understands authenticity like very few people I know. You could say I have a spiritual womb, perhaps. At least that's how I like to think of it. It's a way I make peace with the life I didn't expect. The work I'm doing right now is also work I had never expected. I've spent the entire decade of my 30s working in the same house where I help manage a two-year transformational housing program for men and women coming out of addiction and trying to change their lives. 
I've also recently begun a part-time job working as a clinical therapist in a 21-day intensive residential program for men struggling with substance use while they're on parole and probation. I have my own apartment, but I do live in a community house with graduates from our programs and uh, several other people who are in recovery as well. So there are 13 of us in this house. Since I've been working two jobs, which have the label essential, I have not sheltered in place as much as I've mitigated risk while constantly engaging with lots of different people, including people who are unsheltered, unhoused, dealing with addiction. The need for masks has presented a wall of sorts between myself and the the people I work with. The mask is just very intrusive and disruptive in terms of connecting with people, them not being able to see my face. You know, we have to be really separated from one another. Uh, I haven't enjoyed that at all. For the last couple of months, I've been collecting stories and working on a series looking at this time through the lens of the Enneagram. If you have no idea what that is, fear not. This will not be an Enneagram 101. There are plenty of other places for that, and I'll provide a few of them in my show notes for those of you who are interested. The reason I wanted to do this series is that the Enneagram reminds us that though we share so much in common as human beings, we do not experience this world the same way other people do. Sometimes our perspectives can be so divergent that we have a hard time even being in the same room with someone who sees it differently. What I love about the Enneagram is that it helps us to see how our defining features can be used for good or ill. It exposes our blind spots. And it helps us to understand why understanding each other can be so hard. In this time when our country and our world often feels so divided, when even wearing a mask during a pandemic has become an act of politics, it seems to me that this is a tool we could really use. The stories I'm bringing you are from people who you probably won't hear from in the news. They're not famous, but they're stories of people who've thought a lot about how they're living. Stories that would be worth sharing with or without the Enneagram. Rather than tell you about the nine types of the Enneagram, I'm going to let the stories speak for themselves. I can't imagine a better place to start than with Jen. In terms of the Enneagram, I am an eight wing seven. I've been told this combination has the most energy of all the types, which I think is interesting. I wouldn't disagree. I once told my friend that sometimes I feel like I have a nuclear reactor inside of my body. So yeah, it kind of normalized it for me when I learned that that's actually the highest energy combination on the Enneagram. (laughs) One of the questions that was asked was, what is a word I would use to describe myself? And I sort of laughed at this because I really do not like this question. And I'm wondering if that's an eight thing. I don't know. Maybe that's a, a sense of control. Like somebody's trying to control me by making me label myself with a word. I've known I'm an eight for about 10 years And the main thing that's changed in that decade is that I no longer feel proud of it. I remember when I first figured it out, I thought it was cool, especially since being a female eight was kind of rare and edgy. But somewhere in there, self-awareness grew and with it embarrassment as I realized the ugly parts of me, of my eight, were not side notes, but really core issues. I think one of the main things I've learned is that the type of woman I want to be, I can never naturally be, that I'm going to have to fight for it. 
So I think that's when things shifted from being proud of being an eight to feeling a bit embarrassed about it. But I think that's what this sacred map is supposed to do, honestly. I don't think it's supposed to be a feel-good tool that indulges us in our egocentrism uh, and just pushes us further down the road. I, I think it's supposed to inspire us to transform. I recently printed out this visual map of the eight, and in the corner, it lists the qualities of an eight at their worst. There's also some encouraging things on there, but I printed it out honestly to remind myself of how I can come across because I can't see myself. And I've realized if I'm not proactive, I will blindly bulldoze my way through life without even meaning to really. So what I wish people knew is that I need help and feedback and that I deeply appreciate it when I get it because I truly don't want to be these ugly things, egocentric, domineering, confrontational, intimidating, angry. I mean, I'm always going to be a little bit of these things. That is part of my core and there's good to some of those things. But I do know I admire deeply people who are gracious and gentle. And those are words I have tried to cling to, really. I want to be those things. But yes, I need help. Yeah, can accomplish what's not natural on my own. I began collecting these audio diaries a couple of months ago. Since then, a lot has changed. This past week, I reached out to see what big or small things people were doing to keep themselves going. I asked them if there was anything about this particular moment in history that they wanted to reflect on. Something I do to deal with the heaviness of this time is exercising. I think that's an eight thing, definitely having to physically move my body, exert myself. If it's running or working out on stairs or biking up one of the mountains in the front range here in Denver, I, I do think it's partly an eight thing to need exercise so much. And I do truly fear what type of person I would be without physical activity. I've also been memorizing some scripture, which is new in the sense that I haven't done it in years. I'm memorizing particular passages that remind me of my powerlessness and of God's sovereignty. And this helps me to choose hope because I remember there are many layers to reality and many of them I can't see. My hope is that this crisis triggers a deep and long-lasting cultural transformation, particularly in the United States. Uh, the actual definition of spirituality in Latin and Greek means an actualization or an awakening to our personal spirit, essentially waking up to the real you. I think we need to be pushed out of our comfort zone so that more of us can wake up. And I'm including myself in this. I think our cultural values can mature beyond rights and self-gratification and take on a more spiritual quality with us perhaps valuing responsibility and sacrifice and service, inner peace, vulnerability, emotional health, these things that are there, but subtle, I would say, these are not the defining qualities of our culture. My dream is to see us value a more meaning-oriented life filled with the type of good things that require a little bit of suffering and have to be sought after and fought for and not this conditioned demand for life to be handed to us on a silver platter. I am looking at myself when I say that as well. And maybe that's a little heavy, but that's again... <laughs> 
That's an Enneagram 8 intensity statement, probably. On the topic of George Floyd and systemic racism in our country, I've chosen to remain mostly quiet on the matter, mainly because I want to listen, I want to read, I want to observe. I do, however, have no problem speaking when it comes to calling out any racism that I see in my immediate sphere of influence. As an Enneagram 8, that's never been difficult for me. I don't hesitate to call that out and to gently yet firmly confront that sort of really sick thinking, I would call it. The book that I read in college has come to mind. It's called Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Kozel. He very methodically and in a very detailed manner unpacks the gross disparity in our education system between the schools that are funded and resourced and propped up by robust taxes typically through the property value that is in the surrounding community in very stark juxtaposition to the schools that are underfunded and under-resourced because there is not that tax revenue to any extent that can provide that same level of education and even going down to sanitation. And he really breaks it all down and paints a real picture. And I don't see the police brutality and the disproportionate crime rate in the black community as disconnected from our education system. I think that is a huge piece of the equation that the white community has to take responsibility for, I believe. Of course, there are many layers to this incredibly deep and complex problem of systemic racism. And yet, I guess to me, we have to start somewhere. We have to pick something to actually make change. Where are we going to choose to invest our energy and make change. And I believe the education system is a perfect place to start because without hope for the future, without feeling like you have options and choices and you have value as a young child growing up, how can anyone expect crime to not become the most favorable option at some point? I believe these two things are very connected and it's something we can do something about. It's something that the white community can say, we will fundamentally alter how the education system is funded and structured so that at least there, there's some level playing field. That's a good starting point. That moment that Jen shared in the beginning about sitting with Stephen in the group home while he cried about not having a family, it's a memory that's still with her today. It set her on a path that she's still following one she never could have anticipated. You know, I've been a spiritual mom all these years. I, I, I see it that way. I've served and loved and poured into some precious, amazing people through the work that I do, the ministry where I serve, people coming out of addiction and homelessness and dealing with mental illness. But the reality is those people come and go and, and they can choose to stay in contact with me or, or not. I would say the worst thing I've watched unfold related to COVID and all the forced closures and forced sheltering has been the disintegration of a man I love deeply who had desperately needed hope and help right when any place I could offer that to him had closed its doors. Of course, the magic question is, would he have disintegrated to the same extent had those doors been open? Possibly. I'll never know. Uh, but I do know isolation is kryptonite for anyone who struggles with who they are and struggles with the shame of addiction and who quite literally at that point hates the skin they live in and is essentially swimming in shame. 
the isolation that is forced upon a person like that cannot cope and manage the way the majority of us can. So that's definitely been my greatest burden throughout this season. I'm now looking very seriously at a massive life change, which would mean moving somewhere that I can afford housing. It's certainly not Denver at this point and adopting from the foster care system. That's where the need is. Doing it as a single woman was never in my mind. I have come really far in the foster care certification process and have always wanted to do it, but just kept waiting for marriage to happen. I didn't even consider adoption until really the past six months. Another relationship failed and I realized marriage was not a near-term possibility in my life. And a couple of years ago thought, you know, I guess I have no control over that part of my life. So here I am now really wondering if I'm not going to get married and being a biological mom is never a possibility for me. That ship is definitely, it's sailing. I don't know if it's fully sailed, but it's definitely sailing away from me. And my heart is weary from the lack of permanency and the depth of connection that you get as a real mom. And you know, I never needed to be a biological mom. I never felt like, oh, I just have to birth children from my womb. But I will admit, you know, that is getting harder. I think once you realize you don't even have the choice, suddenly you're like, well, wait a second. I would like to have a say in this. So we'll see. I'm terrified, absolutely terrified and not sure, but cautiously proceeding forward. The eights in my life are some of the most courageous people I know. At their best, that capacity for courage makes them incredible friends. Jen has seen me at my worst more than any other friend I've ever had. She's taught me that real friendship is made of engaging those ugly moments instead of avoiding them or sweeping them under the rug. If you're lucky enough to have someone in your life who offers you that kind of friendship, then you know what a gift it is. It means that when you feel unlovable and hopeless, you have someone to call who isn't afraid of your vulnerabilities and mistakes, who at her best can listen without making you feel judged, and yet somehow at the same time encourage you toward transformation and growth. It's true that eights can be a little brash sometimes, that they'll say things you might not want to hear, but we desperately need them. They're the prophets of our time, the people who will warn us of the destruction coming, who, if we listen to them, will put us on a different path. So the daily sanity today is to think of someone who challenges you, whose truths you find hard to hear. You don't have to agree with them, but consider what they're saying. Let them know that their courage is a gift. Or if you're like Jen, on a path you never saw for yourself, it may be that what you need today is to find someone who will be gracious and gentle with you, who will give you the help and feedback you crave, who will remind you of your courage and that you don't have to walk this path alone. If you found today's episode meaningful, I hope you'll subscribe wherever you listen and share it with a friend. If you listen on iTunes or another platform that allows you to rate and review, leaving a quick note about what you appreciate about the show helps others find us and moves us a little closer to being able to make this work sustainable, not just now, but in the future. 
Shelter in Place is grateful to be sponsored by Delta Wines, the refined daily drinker with a social good built in. These California wines are fresh and approachable, perfect for casual dinners at home, which is why we keep several in our fridge at all times. Plus, for every $15 bottle you buy, Delta donates $1 to fighting climate change. Buy online at winesforchange.com and use the code SHELTER to get 10% off. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Tamara Kemsley is our associate producer. Nate Davis is our creative director. And Sarah Edgel is our design director. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.